Hi there. Thank you for joining us on the Redeemer Church podcast. Here at Redeemer, we exist to see Christ exalted in our church, community, and world. It is our mission to lead people into the presence of God, devotion to His Word, authentic fellowship with others, and discovering their ministry. We hope that this podcast is just one of the ways you connect to God's presence this week. Let's check out this week's message. Good morning, Redeemer. It's good to see you all. I don't know about you, but I've been loving our current series. Uh, If you haven't discovered this yet about me, I'm a big Bible nerd. I couldn't read my Bible and study it enough. And this series I love because we're kind of hoping to, to take a peek a little bit behind the curtain of how do we do a Bible study. So it's not just about the scripture that we're reading and sharing, but also how do we approach scripture itself as we read it in a day-to-day basis. And so far, we have had some pretty amazing conversations. Adam started off the series talking about the reliability of Scripture. And then we talked a little bit about how the New Testament uh, uses the Old Testament, as New Testament writers were, were writing. Last week, Adam helped us to understand the role of the Holy Spirit in identifying false doctrine. And this week, I'm really excited. We're going to be doing something quite a bit different. We're going to be asking five hard questions and answering them in five minutes or less. Now, because our staff knows that I love to talk, I'm going to have an accountability timer. And y'all are going to watch Uh, as I answer five difficult questions in five minutes or less, and you will be uh, able to witness on the screen whether or not I am successful at answering this question or not. And it can also help you to know that no, Dave is not about to ramble on until dinner. So that's my promise to you as well. Uh, But I will be having some help from some friends. So we're going to introduce some more staff to you, and they're going to be asking these questions uh, on, on our behalf. And what I love about this is all of these conversations are conversations that I asked either when I was uh, in my undergraduate work or even in seminary. And they all happened with mentors of mine over a cup of coffee. So you notice this morning we we exchanged our pulpit for a round table. Uh, And really the purpose behind that is I want this to be an open invitation to you all uh, to have a cup of coffee together. Uh, with one another, or even with me. I would love to have more conversations about how it is that we go about reading this well. These are God's love letters to us, his scriptures. And one of my big heart passions is to help train us how to, to use it better, how to get more out of it, how to understand more of it. So treat this as an open invitation. Shoot me an email. I'd be happy to sit down and have conversations with you. This morning is going to be a little bit like drinking from a fire hydrant. And so as we go through these questions, if you want further clarity on things, please, I really would love to have a cup of coffee with you and sit down and chat. So let's get started. Let's roll with question number one. Hey, Dave, how can we really trust what the Bible says? Well, thank you, Diego. That's a great question. Uh, I don't know about you, but I was practically born in the church. Uh, So from the time that I was six months old, I've been sitting in a pew listening to a preacher talk about scripture. And one of the first things that my parents taught me was the importance of this book. And from the time that I was really little, I always uh, had a special place in my heart for the authority of this text. But not everybody has that same experience. 
Not everybody, uh, not all Christians have, from the moment that they were very little, known that this is an authoritative text, or to take it that way. Well, my entire upbringing, I kind of only used Scripture to defend why I liked Scripture. And to my mind, that entirely made sense. And so I would encounter passages like Psalm uh, 1, verses 1 and 2, which I'm going to read in a minute, and I would use those to argue to people as to why we ought to read our Bibles. And I'd never understood uh, the the misconnect there. And and maybe you already are are grabbing onto it, and if not, uh, I'll explain that in a second. But this is what Psalm 1, 1 and 2 has to say. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked, or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, who, who meditates on his law day and night. And so right there, we get an instruction to meditate on his law day and night. Well, if someone were to ask me up until, really, I went to seminary, why do you read scripture? I would say, well, scripture tells me to meditate on it day and night. Well, that's circular reasoning. Um, scripture saying that you should read scripture. That's a lot like me getting in an argument with you and saying, listen, listen to me. My name is Dave and I am right. We don't approach arguments that way. Well, if we do, they're not that successful, right? The person's like, why do, why do I trust you? Uh, if we're arguing about this and I already don't agree with you, why should I trust you at your word? And scripture, if we defend it by saying scripture says to read scripture, we run into the same problem. Well, I'm not sure I trust it. So how, how do we come about explaining why we trust scripture? And the, the whole point is, for me, is reading the Bible because it says so only works if we already believe it has authority. So let's talk about why it has authority. The predominant reason why scripture has authority in the first place is because it tells us about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that it's a faithful witness to that. So what we have in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are very early accounts of people who have witnessed Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And that they saw something unique and special in him as they were watching him operate. And then they say that he died a horrific death and was risen again. Now that would be an audacious claim in its own right. But these 12 individuals, well really 10 of them after everything's said and done, went and died horrific deaths themselves to defend what they saw. They didn't give up on it. Now, You might, one person might be a lunatic enough to die for a lie. I have a hard time believing that 10 of them would have sacrificed their whole life. And so scholars broadly are saying that the the Gospels really are a pretty good representative together of the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. That this seems to be demonstrating pretty certainty, with pretty good certainty, who Jesus was. And then when we look at Jesus... And we look at the ways that he engaged scripture, particularly like Luke chapter 4, when the devil is tempting Jesus in the wilderness and quotes scripture to Jesus to convince him to do something wrong, Jesus responds with scripture. So we know that he took the time to internalize, 
his Old Testament, which was his scriptures. And he never spends time, he might elaborate or give clarity on them, but he never disregards them, he never disrespects them, and never pushes them away. And so broadly speaking, that's why we can trust scripture, that they are a reliable witness account to who Jesus was, and that Jesus himself then trusted the scriptures. Now that's a non-circular argument, do you see? That's not saying trust scripture because scripture says to trust it. It's saying that it accounts for an amazing person, his life, death, and resurrection, and does so faithfully, and that person said to trust scripture. So we do. All right, I barely made it, so this is going to be hard. (laughs) Let's look at uh, the second question. Hey, Dave. I was wondering, are the modern or contemporary translations that we like so well, are they trustworthy? Well, thank you for that great great question, Sandra. Uh, Now, for me, and I, again, can only speak for me. I, I can't necessarily speak for you. But what began to be a little troubling to me as I was younger, and even when I was in college, was that I had a lot of preachers who, like me, uh, will quote from Hebrew or will quote from Greek. The Old Testament was written predominantly in Hebrew, and the New Testament was written predominantly, well, not predominantly, all of it was written in Greek. Uh, and so I used to wonder... Why is it that they have to go in and correct scripture all the time? Does that mean that I can't just take this book home with me and trust it? That I can't just engage it myself? That there, I need to have, maybe I need to know the languages myself in order to be able to read this. And then what made it a little worse in college for me was that I would then pick up like my NIV, but then my friend had an ESV. Well, I'd read a passage and go, well, they don't say the same thing. Well, why don't they say the same thing? Well, then I could go over and pick up something called an NASB, which was still different yet, and going, well, how is it that we can be translating one thing and I can't come away with one text? Maybe I can't trust this at all. Well, then I asked this question to a professor of mine in, in undergraduate work, and he sat me down over a cup of coffee, and we sat and I asked him all of these different questions. And he said, you know, Dave, when the committee decided... When the NIV committee decided they wanted to write or produce this translation, just like any other committee out there, whether that's the King James Version or the the NASB Version or any other contemporary modern English translation, what they've done is they've gone and taken scholars that have dedicated their lives to understanding the original language, whether that's Greek or whether that's Hebrew, and have spent their entire lives studying one book. And then they lock them into a room together. And they give them basically the Greek manuscript or the Hebrew manuscript, and they say, make a translation of this and use your years of expertise, your years of studying in order to come out with this close to a one-to-one, word-for-word translation of Scripture. And that work is what sits in our hands when we read the NIV. So what I'm holding in my hands is a compilation of thousands of years of difficult study to arrive at a text that I can take to my bedroom uh, and read with complete certainty that I can be sure that what in here is reliable to the original text. Now, a little bit of clarity as to why pastors and teachers like myself love to give you a little bit background of Hebrew or Greek if you can take your your Bible home and it be a trustworthy, reliable source. Well, if you look up any word in English in the Webster Dictionary, and I shouldn't say any, but most words, 
You come with a paragraph explanation for that one word. Words are basically abstract concepts or ideas. And so in order for us to have a full understanding of that word, uh, we kind of need a paragraph to talk about that word. And we do that in English, we do that in French, and yes, we do that with Greek and Hebrew. So when you're asking someone to make a one-to-one word-for-word translation from any language into a different language, they have to make some tough choices. They know the paragraph full of meaning, and they have to pick the best word that fits that context best at that given point. So as a preacher or a teacher, what our job is sometimes is to zoom out a little bit and go, look, it's not a great one word-for-word translation here. We need to have a broader range of meaning or understand the big paragraph around it uh, so that we can better understand the text and better apply the text. So it's not saying that this Bible translation isn't true or isn't trustworthy. It's just saying... There's a lot to that word. Uh, There's a lot of meaning behind it. Uh, And so here's a gateway into knowing more about it. And any good commentary will do the same type of thing for us. All right, so let's jump in to question three. Hey, Dave. I was wondering, do we read all scripture the same way? I absolutely love that question. Because it's actually much harder than what it seems. Um, The short answer to that question is no. Uh, Now, we've already run into a verse in this series, and it's on our video, actually, uh, that we've worked through. But I want to kind of take that verse and look at it from a different angle. And it's 2 Timothy chapter 3.16. In that verse, Paul says, All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, what we could hear from this verse is that I have to scrutinize over every word, every letter, every verse, and make sure that I understand the thing that it's trying to communicate to me in a training way, in a rebuking way. Um, But that's just not exactly how Scripture works. When we get into it, we have to make two de- one of uh, we have to make a decision it's one of two things going on scripture at any point is either descriptive or it's prescriptive so descriptive means that it's explaining uh, something to me it's telling me something prescriptive means that it's telling me i ought to be doing something because of the context now here's my favorite example for scripture that is being descriptive and not prescriptive it comes in acts chapter one so jesus has just told all of his apostles go into the upper room don't do anything until i send the holy spirit who is the advocate so peter in all of his zeal gets to the upper room and what does he do let's replace our lost disciple So we're going to vote. We're going to take a vote on who is supposed to be next. And he takes lots, which if you don't know, are dice. And he basically throws dice onto the floor. And what comes out is the dice points to Matthias as being the next apostle to replace Judas. And so they replace him. They essentially play a game of craps to find out who is to be the next apostle. You never hear of Matthias again in all of Scripture. That's his only moment of shame, one time, or or fame, one time, it comes up. And then the Apostle Paul breaks onto the scene and writes this half of the New Testament. 
It makes me wonder if when Jesus said, go to the upper room and wait for the Holy Spirit to come, if he didn't mean go to the upper room and wait. I have a plan. So if I were to try to read that text prescriptively, what I would walk away with is saying, Whenever I don't know what to do, I'm going to take dice and I'm going to roll them out and we're going to decide where I'm supposed to go when God anointed that whole thing. I don't think that's what Acts 1 is trying to communicate. I think what Acts 1 is trying to communicate is this is what Peter did. Maybe you heard about that other disciple running around, but I think that God had a different plan in mind. And Paul breaks out into the scene in the book of Acts in a powerful way in the second half. And so scripture is either being prescriptive or it's, or it's being just descriptive. And then some other markers along the way that can help us make an educated decision on whether the book is, is being descriptive or prescriptive is that there's also genres that scripture is written in. And so throughout the entire book, we have genres like narrative, we have poetry, we have letters, we have prophecy, We have all of these different types of things going on, which kind of help us dictate how we're to approach any of our scriptures. So I say that to say, I don't read a nonfiction book the same way I read a fiction book, nor the same way that I read a textbook. The genre helps me understand how I'm supposed to read that book. Scripture has many genres in it. So to help us understand if a text is being descriptive or prescriptive, we have to also understand and process some of the genres. That can help be our guide in terms of understanding how is it exactly that I'm supposed to approach the book of Acts, which is kind of more of a historical text, or the book of Psalms, which is a lot of poetry. How I read them will change a bit based on the genre. All right, made that one too. On to question four. Hey, Dave. I have a question. How do we apply Scripture to our daily lives? Now, this is my favorite question. And it might be because his name is David. Um, It might be because we just share a kindred spirit uh, by being named off of the same biblical character. Uh, Really, the long and the short of it is, we have to read Scripture carefully in order to apply it to our day-to-day lives. We are meant to apply scripture to our day-to-day lives, so don't look at that as kind of a cop-out, oh, it's hard. I'm not saying it's hard, I'm saying we have to do it carefully. There's two major contexts that we have to keep in mind when we're thinking about applying scripture. The first is the author's context, and the next is our own personal context. So regarding the author's context, it's important that we know kind of some of the history that's, that's going on. I preached out of Daniel chapter 7 and Revelation not that long ago. And we do a whole lot of kind of weird things with those two books, and we'll come back to that a little bit later. Uh, but one of the things that we often do with those is forget the historical bend of what's going on. In Daniel, the the Israelites were having been conquered by the Assyrians and the Babylonians. They're in a major crisis of faith. They're not even sure their God is still alive. Back then, they used to believe that regional gods would go to war when their nations went to war, and that one of them 
would die in this type of battle. So the Israelites are not even sure, is is this God alive? Is he not alive? I don't know what's going on anymore. And so part of the image of Daniel 7 is really, your God is alive. This is all a part of his grand plan, and that he will save you. That is the big gist of what's going on. And that's also the kind of the same type of deal that we get into Revelation. Revelation, the church is being broadly persecuted, uh, and John is writing a, in sharing a vision of hope for suffering Christians. Now, if we don't take those two things first, all we're going to be doing is pulling out a bunch of different charts, trying to figure out what all is going on. And I've been to a lot of Bible studies that, that have done that with both of those books, and we'll get back to that later. Uh, but we have to understand the author's context. We have to understand what is the author trying to communicate in that era of history? How did the original audience receive what was being communicated? And how did the original audience try to apply that? Then on the other side, we have to look at our own context. What are, what are we currently going through in our lives? Are we reading into scripture what we want to get out of it? So by that I mean, am I wrestling with a problem right now where I'm like, God, I want to hear your voice. I need you to move in such a powerful way in my life because I don't know which direction it is that I'm supposed to go. And then wouldn't you know it, we find the exact answer in the text that we wanted all along. Well, sometimes we're reading and boomeranging our own hopes and dreams into this text, and we're doing something called proof texting. We're taking scripture out of context just because we really, 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 really wanted to apply to this particular scenario in my life because it'd be really helpful, and life is really hard right now. Well, ultimately, when we, when we pull back the lens a bit, we find that what is actually promised is, is that the Christian life is hard and that there's going to be moments of difficulty. And then that's not strange or obscure. Uh, and that when we find ourselves in a tough spot, it's not just that we can say uh, from a magic balm, we're going to plead the blood of Jesus over us and it's going to go away. No, there are times where God inbreaks into our life in miraculous ways and can do things that is unexplainable. But there's also times where he tells us it's going to be hard. And so we can't just impose our will on scripture and say, you're going to mean what I want you to mean today. We have to try to understand our own bias as we're coming into the text of what our expectations are. And then because the Holy Spirit empowered uh, and inspired the writing of this in the first place, what we have to do is rely on the Holy Spirit to bridge the gap. So to bridge our understanding of the original context and our understanding of our current context to help us in, make an informed decision about what we're supposed to do next. And so all that to say, Scripture does speak in our day-to-day lives and has major ramifications for how we are to live. But to discern that, we have to walk through it carefully. All right, so let's get our last question. Hey, Dave. What's the deal with the end times? Oh, you know what? I did read the Left Behind series, so I think I've got it, right? There's so much that I could say about the Left Behind series. So much. Um, and I'm, I'm going to refrain myself. I grew up, though, in a church where you would think that the Left Behind series was actually scripture. And I felt like that that might have been preached from the pulpit even more than scripture itself. I was terrified of it then, so I never even read them. 
All I, know, all I knew as a young 12-year-old was I absolutely did not want to be left behind to experience whatever that was going to be. And that fascination with the end of all things, I think, enables us to drive a particular framework into harder passages of Scripture like Daniel or Revelation or Matthew 24 that perhaps shouldn't be there as we first approach the text. And one of the things that I think Jesus said that's particularly helpful uh, comes directly out of Matthew 24. So in Matthew 24, Jesus is talking to his disciples about the end of all things and the different signs and wonders that are going to go on and the markers of the end of all things. And so I've heard some people tell me that Jesus has to be coming back tomorrow because the world has never been so bad. And my response is, he certainly could, and it is pretty bleak out there, right? The world in which we live is a pretty evil place. And we could make an argument that maybe it is the worst that we've ever seen. But I would say that Nero was pretty bad uh, back in the church's time. I will say that the Civil War was pretty bad that we had. World War I, World War II... There's different markers in history that we could go back and could arguably argue if we lived back then that it had to be the end of the earth. It had to be. Confidently. And Jesus didn't come back then. Uh, he, Jesus may come back tomorrow. It's, it's very legitimate. He promises us that he will come back. He, he might wait a little while. This is what we know about the end of all things. And and Jesus tells us this specifically. In Matthew 24, he says, But concerning that day and hour, no one knows. I'm going to repeat that. No one knows. Not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. And so I, I couldn't tell you the amount of Bible studies I've gone to on the book of Revelation where we spent more time opening up charts and spanning these charts, trying to figure out and discern what the actual symbols mean today and how that is working out in my immediate day-to-day life. Now, I'm not going to say that those things are downright bad. But what I am here to say is, I think if we are approaching Scripture with the sole fact of trying to decide exactly when Jesus is coming back, we might be in trouble. And the reason why I feel like we might be in trouble is because Jesus says, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. So I feel like Jesus is coming out and going, I'm about to reveal things to you for your encouragement and for your hope and for your, your faith. But don't try to get into this too, too much and figure out exactly when I'm coming back. You're not going to know. I'm going to return kind of like a thief in, in the night. I'm going to come just the same way that no one expected me to uh, when the flood came. Days to days are going to be operating like normal, and then one day I'm, I'm going to show up. Well, then what do we do with the books of like Revelation and Daniel? How, how do we approach them? And I would argue we approach them the same way that we approach other books in Scripture. We come to them trying to understand the background of what's going on. That we try to understand what the author is intending to communicate to the people that that book was written to. Then we try to understand our current life context and recognize that when there's weird symbolism going on, that that symbolism had a meaning 
to their original audience. And then try to go back and go through either a useful commentary or some other helpful devices to go, well, what did that mean to them? And that might help shape its meaning for me today so that I can get into it that way. But I know that this is the key factor that we have to take into these books, particularly Daniel and Revelation, is that they're books predominantly about hope for people that feel lost and that people that don't know where, where their help's going to come from, that they're concerned and they're in theological crisis, that they, is God really real? Is this what I really believed? Is this all going to come true and come to pass? And the answers of those books is yes, that Christ is faithful. He is who he said he was, and he has accomplished what he said he was going to accomplish. And through that lens, we approach these difficult books and try to understand how they unfold more of the gospel. Well, I didn't quite make it on that one, so, so my apologies. Now, if you have been feeling as though this was a lot, and it has been a lot, I want to remind you of this roundtable and a conversation offer. Uh, I would be happy to sit down and have any conversation with you about, well, really anything, but especially around this book. And in whatever way that I can help bring clarity and usefulness to your study of it, I'd be delighted to have that conversation. I'd also encourage you to have cups of coffee or your beverage of choice with other friends as you're conversating around this particular text and understanding how to apply it to our day-to-day lives. So let's close in prayer together. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you have given us a book that describes to us your love for us. That there was nothing that could stand in the way of you coming and rescuing us from our own sinful mistakes and the consequences thereof. Lord, sometimes this book that we approach is difficult to understand. Um, Sometimes it's hard to read. Lord, we ask that you would just continue to move through your spirit, spirit to give us greater and greater clarity. May you give us the boldness to develop conversation partners to walk through this text with together. And Lord, may you give us the discipline to engage it regularly because it will always be foreign to us if we never read it. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Once again, thank you for listening to the Redeemer Church Podcast. To stay connected to all that God is doing here at Redeemer, visit our website at RedeemerTulsa.org or connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Have a blessed week.